Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Douglas Murray, and this is Uncensored Tonight. In a New Year message, the Israeli military warns the conflict in Gaza will continue throughout 2024. Can the war continue to be justified after so much suffering and bloodshed? Or is it necessary to destroy Hamas for the safety of the region and the world? A satirical take on political correctness and oversensitivity or just plain offensive? We'll debate whether the backlash to Ricky Gervais and Dave Chappelle's new Netflix shows are justified. And should King Charles agree to vacate the throne in a few years' time to let Prince William take over? I'll talk to the Guardian journalist who says the abdication of the Queen of Denmark puts our archaic system to shame. Live from the news building in London, this is Piers Morgan Uncensored. Good evening and welcome to Piers Morgan Uncensored. I'm Douglas Murray, filling in for Piers for the rest of the week. What better way to ensure the happiest of starts to a new year? I hear you all cry. Only joking, Piers. I know you're watching, by the way, and don't forget the sunscreen. Over the next three days, my guests and I will be looking at the big topics and themes that will dominate the global agenda in 2024. We'll be covering everything from the potentially game-changing elections in the US and the UK to the seemingly never-ending madness of the culture wars. We might even touch on the odd royal story. I, of course, am the biggest Harry and Meghan fan, so expect some Markle mania to break out this week. Indeed, this is going to be a Markle-arama. That's just another joke, Piers. Sorry, if you're still watching. And trust me, folks, he's still watching. But we'll start with the story I predict will continue to dominate the headlines for the year ahead. War. As regular viewers of Uncensored will know, I spent the last few months of 2023 in Israel covering the conflict in Gaza. I saw firsthand the death and carnage unleashed by Hamas on October the 7th. I visited the tunnels they used to hide beneath the civilian population. And I experienced many times, including on this very show during a live broadcast, what it was like to be under enemy fire. And I... Sorry, there's an incoming... Uh, incoming... Get safe, Douglas. Come, come, come. And of course, I got to see the impact of Israel's massive response to those massacres. Hamas seized control of the Gaza in 2006 to 7, and they reduced it to a terror state that's now, in turn, being reduced to rubble, with the displacement of hundreds of thousands of people. Many Palestinian civilians, including children, are caught in the crossfire. But I've never wavered in my view that this war is not only just, but also necessary. Israel has the right and the need to defend itself, and Hamas need to be crushed for the sake of the region and the world. And that's why when it was reported this afternoon that Hamas deputy head Saleh al-Aruri has been killed in an explosion south of Beirut, I, for one, will shed no tears. Nobody 
could live beside a terror group like Hamas. We couldn't here in Britain, and I don't see why the Israelis should. And yes, I know that isn't a consensus view. There are lots of people who vehemently disagree with me. So I'm keen to explore not just what has happened, but what happens next. Now, joining me tonight to discuss this is from Tel Aviv, the former British Army officer and now trustee of the UK Friends of the Association for the Wellbeing of Israeli Soldiers, Colonel Richard Kemp, and from Ramallah, Palestinian National Initiative leader, Mustafa Barghouti. Thank you both for joining me. Let me start uh, with you, if I may, Mr. Barghouti. Uh, we've just had this news in. We've all just heard it of the deputy head of Hamas being killed in Beirut. Obviously, this is the leader of the group that killed Palestinians in the coup in Gaza in 2006-7, and, uh, of course, one of the people who planned the October the 7th massacre. What's your response to uh, his killing tonight? Well, if you allow me, and I hope you will accept that from me, I think your presentation is absolutely one-sided, totally biased to the Israeli side. You speak about the right of Israel to defend itself, but you don't mention the right of the Palestinian people to defend themselves. You fail to mention that Israel is the aggressor, which started this terrible occupation since 56 years. And Palestinians, as people under occupation, according to international law, have the right to defend themselves and to resist occupation. You've, you failed to mention that no less than 29,000 civilian Palestinians have been killed by Israeli no, bombardment. I mentioned that. I mentioned including, that. Inc no, no, you mentioned as if they were killed on their own, not by Israeli bombardment. What should be clear here is that 29,000 Palestinians, if we include those under the rubble, have been killed by Israeli terrible airstrikes and artillery bombardment, including no less than 12,000 children. I've said so many times on so many programs, I'm against the killing of any civilian, whether Palestinian or Israel. But if you speak about the killing of 30 Israeli children, you should also speak about the 12,000 Palestinian children who were killed. Well, Mr. Barghouti, I did do a follow-up, I may. Uh, I did mention the killing of children. I did say that that is appalling damage in the war. But let me, let me finish the question before you try to answer a question I haven't yet asked. Please. You said that the Palestinian Please. people are allowed to uh, resist, as you call it. What, what does that look like, in your view? According to international law, people who are under occupation have the right to resist in all forms, including military forms, as long as they respect international law and international humanitarian law. Okay, so, so what does it look like? What does it look like? Israel, Israel wants not only to... Look, I've been struggling with nonviolent resistance all my life. I was injured nine times by the Israeli army, although I never used any weapon. I was shot. I was shot twice. But... But you're, not telling, me, but you're not telling Israeli, me, sir, wait a minute. you're not telling Israeli me what legitimate resistance while, is. While legitimate resistance is all forms of resistance that respect international humanitarian law, which okay. means not attacking civilians, not attacking children. It's very clear. That's what international law says. I am not creating that. Okay. But even Let when I was in my white coat, wait a minute, when I was in my white coat in treating an injured person, an Israeli sniper shot me twice. The same, same mentality of these snipers killed Shirin Abu Akhli, your colleague, the journalist, and nobody, no Israeli was indicted. 303 of my, of my colleagues, doctors, nurses, health professionals, have been killed by Israeli airstrikes in Gaza. 104 ambulances were destroyed. All our health centers were destroyed. 
This is not acceptable. Okay, thank and you, Mr. Barghouti. Mr. Barghouti, we have another guest, so I'd like to go over to Tel Aviv to Colonel Richard Kemp. What do you make of what you've just heard? Well, I think um, Mr. Barghouti talks about uh, legitimate resistance adhering to the laws of war. Uh, well, first of all, resistance to what? The, the Israelis withdrew from Gaza in 2005 uh, and, and set effect, effectively set up a two-state solution. Uh, let, let the uh, Palestinian Authority, which was then taken over by Hamas, run their own territory. So what are they actually resisting? What's this resistance about? And when it comes to the laws of war, the people, the Hamas butchers that Mr. Barghouti has been quoted as referring to as our brave fighters, they went into Israeli territory on the 7th of October. They raped, burnt alive, butchered, cut off their heads, kidnapped, abused civilians and soldiers, civilians, though, which is, you know, against... Obviously, it's against any law of war. It was against the laws of war to kill anyone inside another country, but in, in that way. But, but to, do, to, to, to butcher civilians like that, what, what, where's the laws of war there? And secondly, ever since that day, and of course many, many times before, his brave Hamas fighters, as he calls them, have been firing rockets indiscriminately at civilian populations inside Israel, and they're still doing so. Uh, they won't be doing so much longer because they're about to be throttled by the IDF. And not only that, but they've also been firing them from within the civilian population. That is against the laws of armed conflict and preventing the civilians from leaving the combat areas when the IDF are trying to warn them about attacks, again, against the laws of armed conflict. They've also fired many of their rockets into the Gaza civilian population. We just have to look at the uh, Al-Ali hospital attack that was attributed to the IDF but turned out to be an Islamic Jihad, another brave Islamic Jihad fighters, firing their own rockets into their own civilian population. Let's not forget what Hamas is all about here. The, the reason Hamas launched this attack, there are strategic reasons, of course, but the, the overriding reason they launched this attack on the 7th of October and the reason they launched all of their attacks is to force Israel to defend itself from these attacks, which any country and every country would do and has the right and the obligation to do. And in, in carrying out its uh, reaction to these attacks, Israel, unfortunately, has no choice but to, to kill innocent civilians in the process despite the efforts they take, which are enormous, to avoid doing that. But that's what Hamas wants. Hamas, they don't, they don't just want civilians to protect their terrorists. They want Israel to kill civilians. So that Israel is then condemned, delegitimized, vilified, isolated around the world. And it happens, works every time in the United Nations, in the universities, uh, in, in some governments, human rights groups, always condemn Israel. That's what Hamas want, and that encourages Hamas to do it again and again and again. Uh, and by is... Mr. Barghouti, who, who claims to support peaceful resistance, by Mr. Barghouti justifying what they do, he also has blood on his hands from uh, encouraging Hamas terrorists. Mr. Barghouti, you're going to get a moment to respond to that. I just want to ask you first, let's just clear that, this up before you do respond to Colonel Kemp. Uh, did you call Hamas our brave fighters or not? I never said that, no. So, yeah, I don't know true, where you it? got that from. Well, no, it's not true. They, 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 you are putting words in my mouth, but let me, let me respond to what the colonel said. The colonel is, said, uh, is reflecting uh, clearly a very clear white supremacy approach. 
It is okay why to kill Palestinians. Why is it white supremacy, civilians. Mr. Why don't, you say, why, don't you say, why don't you say clearly that you are supporting the killing of Palestinian children? Why don't you say clearly that you are supporting the killing of Palestinian civilians? Why don't you say that you are supporting Israeli occupation of Palestinian land and supporting three terrible war crimes? Even the American public is against that. Three war crimes. The war crime of genocide, which the International Court of Justice is looking into now. The war crime of collective punishment and the war crime of ethnic cleansing. 90, wait a minute, 90% of the Palestinian people were evicted from their homes. What would you have said if Palestinians evicted Israelis from their homes? Well, 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 they would have that be course. acceptable? But Mr. Baguji, they have done Why course, don't but, you use the same do, standard? I'm going to go back to, I'm going to, go back to Colonel Kemp in a moment, but why, why, is, why is this white supremacy? Where did that come from? The Israeli public are not all white. Because I, don't, I think you don't see us white enough. And you are against anybody who is not white. And that's why you justify terrible atrocities that Israel is committing. And you are justifying right. not only the fact that Israel is occupying us, but the fact that Israel conducted the worst kind of ethnic cleansing in 1948, forcing 70% of the Palestinian people okay, out of I'm going to go back to Colonel These Kemp. These are now. the facts. I'll just go back to Colonel Kemp quickly. Uh, Colonel Kemp, uh, you, you said that, he, that Mr. Barghouti said our brave fighters uh, were Hamas. He says he didn't say that. Um, who's right? Well, I certainly read him quote. He may not have said it, but I read him being quoted as saying, I think it was Middle East Eye or something like that. But he can certainly, if he'd like to Google it to see what he actually said, he can find that and, on the internet. And what do you make of Sorry. this claim? And what do you make of this uh, claim, Colonel Kemp, that uh, everyone who uh, justifies or is in any way on the side of Israel during this war is a, is a white supremacist? Because Israel doesn't look like a very all white country to me, but I don't know. No, I mean, the, you know, there's. <laughs> There are all blends of um, races in Israel. And one thing we should remember as well is that there is a significant Muslim Arab population in Israel. And one thing that I've observed uh, in recent weeks is a, a skyrocketing, a skyrocketing of support for Israel among the Israeli Arab Muslim population. The, the pol polls, the number of polls have shown that a huge gro growth of support for Israel a greater association with the state of Israel since the 7th of October. And that is partly due to the fact that Hamas, his, his brave fighters from Hamas, that, that he clearly supports, came in and, uh, and butchered not just uh, Israelis, but the, Israeli Jews, but they also came and, and killed a number of Arabs and, and, and people from many different ethnicities. So what he's talking about, I think it's a great throwaway line, white supremacy. It obviously gets, you know, it's one of these intersectional terms you know, Me Too and all this sort of stuff. It's, it's, it, it, he obviously thinks that's going to garner support for him for people who, uh, you know, do object, rightly object to the idea of white supremacy. But I don't think that comes into this argument one little bit. Uh, Mr. Barghouti, finally, we've only got a few seconds, but you said uh, we need to go back to 1947 and 1948. What do you say to the people who say you can go back thousands of years and you never, never have an end to this argument? Well, look, Palestinians were displaced from their country, including cities like Jaffa, where my father lived, and Haifa and Akka, 75 years ago. If Israel is after 3,000 years, have the right to go back and demand to be in Palestine, then why not Palestinians who have been evicted 75 years ago? Why should we forget about our own country? And let's go back to the United Nations resolution that established the state of Israel. It said that there should be two states, 
Yes. Israel and Palestine. Israel was created and Palestine was occupied. Yes. That well, is well, the reality. As we all know, is. Mr. Barghouti, there's one thing that we can be sure about about that. That's highly disputed history, as it all is. There wasn't a Palestinian state then. There could have been. Well, it's the United view, Nations resolution. It's, uh, it's a very sad thing. There wasn't a Palestinian state created then, and that the Palestinians. It will be. Uh, it will be. Well, I assure well, you. A lot of people hope it will be, but uh, if it certainly we'll won't see. be if people are praising Hamas and. Uh, the longer they're around, the less likely it is there will ever be a Palestinian state, as far as I can see. But thank you very much, Colonel Richard Kemp in Tel Aviv, and thank you uh, to Mustafa Barghouti, our intersectionalist tonight in Ramallah. Now, on Uncensored Next. Comedy superstars Ricky Gervais and Dave Chappelle have caused massive controversy with their new Netflix specials. Well, now, surprise, surprise, there are calls for them to be cancelled. We'll debate whether comedy has the right to offend after the break. And welcome back to Uncensored. The reaction to two controversial comedy specials over the Christmas holidays has shown that the dreaded culture wars are going nowhere in 2024. The latest Ricky Gervais special, Armageddon, and David Chappelle's The Dreamer have topped the Netflix charts, but also caused a furious backlash from critics. Here's a clip from both. I've been doing a lot of video messages recently for terminally ill children. You know the charity Make-A-Wish Foundation? They're great and they give these dying kids their like one wish and if it's me I always say yes and I always start the video the same way. I go, why didn't you wish to get better? <laughs> what, you're retarded as well? I ain't doing trans jokes no more. You know what I'm gonna do tonight? Tonight, I'm doing all handicapped jokes. <laughs> Well, they're not as organized as the gays. <laughs> and I love punching down. One critic labelled Gervais' special tiresome adolescence offence-mongering, while civil rights advocacy group the National Black Justice Coalition called on Netflix to remove the Chappelle special from their catalogue altogether. So, should comedy always punch up rather than down, or are comedians free to say whatever they want, even if it offends? Joining me now are commentator and YouTuber Dave Rubin, comedian James Barr, and here in the studio, talk TV contributor Paula Roan Adrian. Thank you all for being with me. Let me start with you, uh, Dave Rubin, uh, over in Miami. Uh, do you think this is a case of sort of crossing the line, uh, or is everything fair game in comedy? Well, of course, everything's fair game, and it's the job of a good comic to get as close to that line as you possibly can, say something true, and then through humor, uh, allow people to laugh at it. And when you poke fun at different groups, what you're doing is showing everybody that, that we're all equal parts of society. Uh, Chappelle and Gervais are two of probably the top 10 comics of all time, but you need only look at a comedy legend, a guy like Don Rickles, who used to walk up in front of the crowd in any part of any country and say, look at the black guy, the Jew, the gay guy, the Italian, the wasp, the rest of it. And what it did was everybody realized they were in on the joke that we are a multicultural society. And if we can all poke fun at our silly stereotypes and everything else, then we will actually figure out ways to build bridges. But everybody these days seems to want to burn those bridges down and, and make it seem that our skin color and our religion is the most important thing about us. 
James, uh, over there in Chicago, where do you stand on this, these, these, these two comedians, funny or foul? It's so funny that you accidentally called him David Chappelle just now, but really, he's so obsessed <laughs> with trans people, I think his name should be Davina, because clearly he wants to transition himself. I mean, he is absolutely obsessed. Listen, Dave Chappelle and Ricky Gervais are both incredible comedians. They have historically been brilliant. Afterlife is great. Dave has used his comedy to punch up by attacking oppression, bringing a light to racism, um, joking about why he doesn't call the police. So he knows how to use comedy to point out oppression and punch up. He's holding people accountable. So why now is he punching down? In my opinion, I think Dave Chappelle has cheapened his act. Paula here in the studio. Ricky Gervais said today he's playing a character when he's on yes. stage. Do you agree with that? Do you buy it? No, I don't. And I have to say, it, it is disappointing because for somebody who is so intelligent, so erudite, and knows the power of language, the power of words, to have become so basic and simplistic in his comedy is disappointing. Um, and it is basic and simplistic. And if you're talking about building bridges, if you're talking about bringing communities together, how is it that you are basically poking your finger uh, at, at, at one particular community? And when you talk about, um, you know, making fun of, of sick children, of, of dying children, I just wonder how desperate you have to be to mm. do that. And, and, you know, we've, we've, we've got a... Um, there, there, there's been a, a poll now uh, um, that's just been uh, commenced, I think, uh, by a mother whose son sadly had cancer, but I, I think is now better. And it's over 13,500 people who have signed up to her poll um, to hopefully get that joke removed from Netflix. And I can understand why she's doing that. Um, Dave Rubin, you know, it raises this question of whether there are or should be... I don't be... know about the... Oh, God. Are there any taboos well, in comedy? I mean, I thought, I thought when watching, certainly the, the, the Ricky Gervais one, I did think slightly, you know, it kind of felt a bit like, gosh, you're choosing really low-hanging fruit to sort of hit against here, you know? I mean, but it seems, because this is the most popular show on... Uh, both these shows are the most popular shows on Netflix, there's clearly a huge audience for it, uh, whether people find it funny or offensive or not. Well, look, the audience in that room found it funny, and those are the people who are buying tickets to Ricky Gervais. So we can all whittle down whether we think that specific joke... You know, I don't think he was making fun of the sick kids, per se. He was making sort of fun of the absurdity that someone like him would be on a make-a-wish list. That's what the joke really was about. His, I don't think, and I don't think anyone on this panel thinks honestly that Ricky Gervais has some grudge against sick kids at all. And as for Chappelle talking about trans people, first off, uh, you know, if, if we're gonna do this based on oppression, who you're allowed to talk about based on perceived oppression, are we only allowed to make jokes about straight white Christians who are wealthy? Is that is that what comedy really is? I don't think so, and I don't think anyone else really thinks so either. Comedy, again, is the great equalizer. So if you're just gonna decide, okay, we can make fun of these people, but not fun of these people, you're gonna have an awful lot of angry people at the end of the day. You know, I would accept that. I, I would wholeheartedly accept that, because, no, I don't believe Ricky Gervais thinks that sick children are a, a, a cheap joke. And I don't think, actually, that Dave Chappelle... And we've seen him on Instagram attempting to pull back from the comments that he's made. So, I, you know, I fully accept that. And that's why I'm saying, first of all, it's a cheap shot. And when Dave Chappelle is quoted as saying that, you know, uh, comedians have... have um, it's their duty to be reckless... 
this is where I disagree and this is where we need to look at responsibility. It's not a comedian's job, actually, to be reckless. It's a comedian's job to be funny. And if they're going to do politics, if they're going to do about marginalised groups, then come on, be intelligent about it. Make us think. Don't do cheap school playground antics. James, uh, you know, all of comedy, James, doesn't it? It's It's all about transgression to some extent. Comedians do have a larger bandwidth than other people in society to say edgy things. Uh, but do you think, where are the boundaries in your view? Listen, I think it is a form of activism. And I do agree with both Paula and Dave here. Like, it is such a nuanced conversation. But really, it is at its best when it's a weapon against the powerful. And Ricky Gervais laughing at disabled kids. It's just, it's a waste of, of bandwidth. It's a waste of an opportunity to say something important. And he says he's a free speech activist. But he has a joke about the N-word. And he doesn't say the N-word. So you either are a free speech activist or you're being a pussy. Like, which is it? Well, that's very interesting. I mentioned earlier, so producers, you know, that, 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 that some people are, using, are saying in pieces about the Gervais special, they're saying the R word. Mm. And I said, look, I mean, we've already got the N word and everyone does know what that means. But if you then got the R word that you're not meant to say as well, we're going to get a whole alphabet of A word, B word, C words that aren't meant to be said. Dave Rubin, are there any words you wouldn't say? Um, well, in that you're the guest host of today's show and maybe you want to return, I'm not going to say them right now. Uh, but look, within context, within context, could you are there could you say the N-word within a certain context and say it not to be racist? Of course you could if you were discussing discussing historical reasons why people said it or if you were making fun of people that use language like that. Uh, but this, this constant push for any time a comedian, if we're all basically, I think we're all agreeing here that these guys are pretty damn funny, so maybe there's a little low-hanging fruit here or there, or maybe one joke misses, that is the challenge of a great comic, that you are gonna spend an awful lot of time in a bunch of really crappy clubs night after night perfecting that hour set so that you can get it on Netflix, and it is possible that one joke may fall flat, and yeah. that is the risk that you are going to have to take. It's, Douglas, I'll text you some of those words. I just don't want to put it on television. I, I don't. I don't want. I don't want to text those words. I don't want to incriminate it in your foul play, Ruben. Uh, look, I mean, what was interesting, <laughs> by the way, about this was that, that that Ricky Gervais, as James says, doesn't say the N word. He refers to the N word, but the Chappelle special has almost nothing but the N word in it. I mean, mm. I, I was sort of a little bit bruised by just hearing it constantly. I mean, I admire, I think Chappelle's the greatest comic on the planet, but it is a little bit sort of wearying. Wow, I don't, I don't know about greatest comic on this planet. I accept that he has done amazing things and made amazing strides in terms of comedy um, for people of colour. Uh, you being uncomfortable about him using the N-word, I'm uncomfortable about lots of people who use the N-word. There is a context, I agree. Um, It's a poetic context. It's an artistic uh, context. Do I think that Dave Chappelle is an artist? No, I don't. Um, And especially when he says, as I said, to be reckless is his duty. That's disappointing. Well, Paula in the studio and comedians, Dave and uh, James over there in America, thank you all for joining us tonight. I texted you, Douglas. I texted you. Nah, I'm not opening that <laughs> one. I think Douglas knows the F word. No, nah, nah, <laughs> no, I'm not opening that text. Uh, all right, up next on Uncensored. 2023 was a big year for the royal family with the coronation. But what does 2024 have in store? Well, one controversial view is that King Charles should follow the lead of Denmark's queen by announcing a date for his abdication. Really? Already? We'll debate that next. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Welcome back. When the Queen of Denmark announced her abdication in her New Year's address, it caused shockwaves in Denmark and around the world. It's being called a shrewd move to save the Danish monarchy and avert disaster after her son's marriage has been beset by rumours of an affair. In a column for The Guardian, Simon Jenkins says King Charles should follow Denmark's example and tell us when he will abdicate. He argues that it puts our archaic system to shame. And Simon Jenkins joins me now. Simon Jenkins, thanks so much for joining us. So um, it, it seems a little early in the reign of King Charles to talk about abdication. Uh, uh, what, what's the point? I'm not absolutely sure I said he should tell us now. Um, that may be the headline to um, getting the better of it. But no, I mean, I'm rather in favour of, um, of constitutional monarchy. Um, but honestly, if you're going to have seven or eight monarchs around Europe, all of whom are hereditary monarchs, none of them have got any power, but they are heads of state. Uh, and if they are really going all to be in their 80s and possibly disabled in some sense, it makes monarchy look very odd. Um, and I'm all I'm saying is I think, I think monarchy, unimportant though it is, uh, just ought to grow up and, 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 and modernise itself a bit, and that's what I'm, I'm suggesting. So, so what, what's your preferred date of uh, departure for the king uh, from the throne, then? I How think, long do you I think, think we should give him? As in the case of Denmark, I think he, he ought to go when... He, when, when he thinks he can't do the job full full time. Um, the Queen was obsessed, I know, or we know, with not showing any sense that she couldn't do the job. Um, and she did amazingly well, and she shouldn't be the example for everybody. But in, in the four cases that I cite in, in um, Low Countries and Scandinavia, they've said, look, 
uh, I think I'm getting on. I can't do it as, as intensively as I used to do it. Um, I think I should hand over to my, my perfectly adequate son or heir, whoever it may be. Um, and that's where we keep modernising the monarchy. Now, hang I on. Think the Simon, Simon I've got to pick you up on that. You can't give the example of Scandinavia and the Low Countries. Surely the British monarchies are a different matter altogether. Well, all right. Uh, we've been incredibly lucky, frankly. We've had the Queen for half a century. Um, it, it is conceivable we might have had Prince Andrew. I mean, you've got to be very careful how you organise this organisation. The monarchy depends on popularity. It's entirely dependent on popularity. It's not elected, it's not appointed, it's, it's inherited. You, you've got to ensure that in the case of um, some disaster or something going wrong or whatever, or a long illness, uh, you can update it. And all I'm suggesting is you update it in the most obvious way of anybody doing any job. That, that is, it's, it's time expired. Um, there comes a point where you can't be as active as you used to be. You can't do the things you used to have. Um, and, and as they've done in, in the Netherlands, in Denmark, in Belgium, in Spain, they've said, all right, fine, um, I think the time's come to hand over to my son. And I can't see what's wrong with that. Well, one final question for you, Simon Jenkins. I mean, isn't it the case that the sort of age and wisdom of the monarch is, is a nice a sort of counterbalance to everything else in society that's obsessed with youth and glittery new things? Isn't there something to be said for a monarch who's seen something, seen a lot of the world? I think there's everything to be said for it. The question is, is it indefinite? I mean, the principle that you, 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 in some sense, have got to go on until you drop dead, I think is simply absurd. Uh, the, the Queen Victoria, the, the country was really sort of under a cloud throughout her long illness at the end of her life. Um, it's conceivable that the Queen might have gone on for another 10 years. Uh, and she, her job would have had to have been done by, by Prince Charles or somebody else. All I'm really saying is, for goodness sake, let's be sensible. Um, the British monarchy is wonderful, it's splendid, it's admired around the world. Um, I think it's over-elaborate, um, it's over-pompous, it's too extravagant in all sorts of ways, it doesn't look modern. Um, but if it's always going to be done by someone who's in their aces, it just looks absurd. But all I'm suggesting is, for goodness sake, uh, let's have a sensible system whereby you do abdicate when you think you can't do it particularly well anymore. Um, okay. Got a perfect well, there's nothing wrong with that, let's go ahead with it. OK, well, thank you, Sam Jenkins. I've got a couple of guests in the studio here, but thank you, and I hope you keep on working till you drop dead at any rate. Uh, so, thank you. I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> in the studio now, I have royal historian Tessa Dunlop and also the historian, writer and broadcaster Hugo Vickers. Now, let me first of all ask you both, uh, 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 what do you make of that? What do you make, uh, Hugo Vickers, of Simon Jenkins's argument? Already we should talk about abdication. Well, I don't think he understands the Constitution very well because there are all sorts of ways that monarchs can um, disappear if they have to. Um, Tommy Lassells, who was the Queen's first private secretary and private secretary George VI, he said, you know, the monarchy is a bit like a rose bush. Every now and again, you have to chop off a head to keep it going. Um, so had we ended up, let's say, with Prince Andrew, I'm sure there would have been a way for him to have been moved to one side. It's actually a very good system. Heredit the hereditary monarchy means that you get somebody who is trained from birth for the job. It also means that they're, they're devoted to selfless service because they know that they haven't climbed up the greasy pole of politics. They haven't you know, fought their way up and that in some, some mm. degree they shouldn't be there. But having got into that position, they then do a very good job. And you saw the fantastic transition from the Queen to yeah. Prince Charles, which couldn't was very been, smooth. Couldn't have been better, could it? And you saw it actually even when the Queen wasn't, you know, terribly well in the last year. Yeah. He stepped in, but then when she reappeared, he stepped aside. So we yeah. got to know him in this role. Yeah. I, I think we already knew good. him, didn't we? Tessa I mean, well, we knew him, yes, we did. Quite familiar with Charles. We, we, we had, yes. 
we had had uh, the Prince of Wales around for a while. Well, uh, on the retirement of the elderly, I think on the basis of this article written by Simon Jenkins, we should perhaps suggest that he retires pretty damn oh, pronto oh from The Guardian. <laughs> it is a lot of guff, and I sit here next to a hardcore believer, sort of evangelical monarchist. I'm monarchist light, and I think we disagree on many things. But if you've got hereditary monarchy, you can't pick or choose. I mean, if we could pick, We'd all have picked Prince William when he had hair to be king, wouldn't he? Let's be, let's be frank. Will maybe imagine the tinsel and the glitter and the glamour. I'm not so sure that you should inflict this onto Prince William any, any day that, um, before mm. it actually comes to be, because uh, as, as Prince Charles, now the king, will have discovered, he has a lot of extremely tedious things that he has to do. Mm. Oh, the hardship of secrecy lobbying, access no, to cabinet um, papers, which palace to lay one's head at at night? I mean, it's a tough <laughs> if, if you think If you think that, then you don't understand one thing about what he's doing and his work. I mean, he's incredibly hardworking. But the, mm. being a monarch it has a lot of responsibilities, a bit, a bit like being, you know, the chairman of the company and not being the sort of, you know, the managing director, the, the man who does the now, job. Now, one yes. other thing I want to touch on with whilst I've got both of you. Uh, over Christmas, uh, the final episodes of The Crown landed. Uh, I thought the whole thing went absolutely bananas towards the end. Uh, uh, but it, it, Well, yeah, OK, you might say earlier seasons, but you've got to admit that this one was especially <laughs> <Yeah>. bonkers. <laughs> I thought the dream sequence with the Queen and Tony Blair was... I couldn't believe it made it to screen. Anyway, uh, it sort of seems to me to have put to rest the whole question of whether or not The Crown is anti-monarchy or not, because look at this clip, which really stood out to me from the very end of the series, when we have uh, the late Queen and Duke of Edinburgh standing above what was to be their final resting place in St George's Chapel. I found this amazing. You were born ready. You are one of a kind. By contrast, this lot... Hmm? The good thing is, it's not our problem. This is where we will be, you and I, right under this stone. We'll never hear the screams from inside there. Philip. I found that clip absolutely amazing, Hugo Vickers. I can't think of a sentiment less likely to come out of the late Duke of Edinburgh's mouth than, oh, well, when once we're gone, it doesn't matter if the whole thing comes down. I can't imagine the late Queen thinking anything like that either. Do you agree? I completely agree with you. I think that if you had any doubt at all about what Peter Morgan was up to, that clip and the extension of it, literally, that was, that was what he was trying to get... Get across to us. I mean, that he was, was the climax of the whole thing. Yes, he was basically saying after the Queen, it's all over. The party's over. They used that very word. Oh come on, you two! That's what You're they do. looking to be triggered. I thought the I'm last. I'm not looking to be triggered. I, I think you are. I think. I just wanted to watch some good drama, and I didn't see it. It was bloated. It was mawkish, but it yeah. was hellishly sycophantic. I mean, actually, with with the exception of that one moment when Philip says, "Oh, yeah, the lock not... can go and scream away as much as they want when we're dead." Everyone, Harry oh. and, and Hang Henry, on. And they were, it was like watching the, custard. The, the, uh, apart from in the first seasons, every, both the other actresses who played the Queen made her out to be this dour, loveless, uh, uncaring, absolutely cold. These and, last episodes were Michael. sycophantic. The only baddies were the outsiders, Mohammed Al-Fayed and poor old Carol Middleton. She was seen as this Iago character, social climbing, you know, slipping well, she, up the pole. I think, she come, I think she comes out of it all right. Uh, no. uh, uh, Mohammed Al-Fayed, you've got to admit, it's kind of hard to make into a hero of the story. Well, they did a bit, um, in the series before. They were rather nice about it. They were, actually, Then yeah. they, turned, they turned on him, which, of because course... they didn't want to turn on to the royal family. That's why. Well, 
It's true. I think Peter's looking for a knighthood, Peter Morgan. I tell you, that's ridiculous. That's so ridiculous. I mean, it clearly had from the start a very yeah. strong Republican agenda. I always thought when Claire Foy was doing it that they were going to say, Claire Foy, the Queen, great, all the others ridiculous. So after yeah. the Queen, goodbye. And that's exactly what he says in that and, last. And, and you've got to admit, once it, once it went into this sort of weird terrain where the ghost of Diana appears oh, and gives right. gives I, advice no, to the Queen and then appears I, appears on a plane with Prince Charles. I mean, they weren't, this drama wasn't was exactly a... sycophantic about Prince Charles and Diana, in fact. Actually, sort of... I thought they made Charles seem sympathetic and bearing in mind this was so clearly a drama, what it did was it spread the magic of crazy monarchy with a bit of Hollywood tinsel over the top right around the globe. It actually means that our royal family, unlike the Danish one, the one without a king that's abdicated in Belgium and the other one in Spain, is talked about. The young people know who they are, love them or loathe them. I think it's been a positive, an overall win for the Hugo king. Hugo Vickers, you've written about all of the mm. factual errors in the early seasons yes. of The Crown. Have you done the later ones as well, or is oh, that yes. volume too long? Oh, yes. No, I certainly have. Okay. And they were published in The Times. Times Online, and I shall publish them as an ebook. I made a YouTube. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did that. I did. A, I did an interview as well about about all the things that went wrong. I mean, if you wanted, you know, historically wrong, the Mrs. Thatcher scene when you know Geoffrey Howe lumbers yeah. out of bed, he makes a speech, she looks depressed. The ministers say this. Come on. And then Dennis says the game's up. And then suddenly she says, I'm going to go and see the Queen and ask her to dissolve Parliament to save my skin. We know she never did that. I just felt, I felt sorry for the actress playing uh, Princess yeah. Margaret because her neck oh, was going to break. I thought it was just going to snap. And, I mean, they couldn't wait to it's have a go at Princess Margaret. She Anyhow. had a hell of a time at the end. Is, are we not allowed to depict old age and the cruelty of it and the difficulties? Wow. Is that I persona thought that non grata? particularly disgusting, actually, the way they portrayed her. I really did. Yes. But then that's not the only one. Yeah. I mean, the way they had Prince Philip being blamed for the death of his sister, which yes. I know... That was, that was, that was also bizarre. Anyway, uh, we might not all agree on this, but thank you very much, Tessa and Hugo. Uncensored next. The police have proudly announced that they will attend every home burglary after 75% of break-ins went unsolved. What's shocking is that they weren't doing that already. I'm joined by the pack to discuss that next. Welcome back to Uncensored. I'm about to go and join my pack, but before I do, I'm going to do a quick fact check. Uh, we had an interview earlier with, uh, with uh, Richard Kemp and uh, Mustafa Barghouti, and there was some discussion about whether Mustafa Barghouti had ever referred to Hamas as uh, brave fighters. And we've, uh, he said he had never said that and thought it had been made up by Colonel Kemp. Turns out that in November 2023, uh, two months ago, Mr. Barghouti said that the heroic steadfastness of our people and their brave fighters in the Gaza Strip. So, sorry about that, viewers. Mr. Barghouti seems to have told us a fib. He did, in fact, say the words that were said by him. Anyway, over to the pack. Today, we've got back, thankfully, Talk TV contributor Paula Roan Adrian and also the filmmaker and former commando James Glancy. Now, we've got quite a lot to get through. I want to start with burglaries. Uh, I was amazed by this, Paula. Uh, yes. We discovered over Christmas that, that, that the police are actually now going to start going to houses that are being burgled and they're going to try to do so in the first hour because apparently that's better. Does this surprise you? Wow. I mean, 
I was shocked that they've just worked that out. Bearing in mind, we've been told, because there have been enough reports that have come out, even in October 2023, we recently had a report from um, uh, one uh, constabulary which said, you know, the best way, and London uh, Metropolitan Police as well have been telling us in their own reports last year, best thing to do about dealing with burglaries is be on the scene and when you're on the scene, make sure you seal off the scene and when you've sealed off the scene, make sure you speak to any witnesses, etc. You know, all things that one would expect a police officer to do in a burglary, yeah. particularly when we know that on average we have got a burglary, depending on the stats that you look at, one every 106 seconds. Yes, it's, uh, it's over a 1,000 a day in this shocking country. Shocking figures yeah. in terms of burglary. Amazing. And they're just not taken seriously. I am a lone female who suffered from a burglary. And let me tell you, it is horrifying yeah. being in a house when somebody is, is, is trying to come in and, and who do, to do yeah. who knows what. It's much more than just losing things. It's, it's a whole Absolutely. sense of violation. Absolutely. And... and, of course, it stays with you as well, not just after, of course, the event. Um, Jane, I, I, I looked this up. Apparently, 4% of burglaries, this is according to the Home Office, 4% of burglaries even result in a charge, which means lots fewer than that actually get convicted. What are the police doing? You know, in my neighbourhood down in West London, I have not seen one Bobby on the beat and I've lived there five years. You see them driving past wow. at speed. So it doesn't surprise me that they're not getting to the scenes of crime. But I don't understand why they're not going back to basics. Apparently, over Christmas, statistics came out that um, prosecutions have been down throughout every police force except for one in Manchester where the guy's gone back to basics, where mm. the police chief's gone back to basics. What is the That's taxpayer right. paying for? Yeah, the Manchester stats are really striking because they've actually realised you have to, as you say, go back to basics with policing, and it has effects. Mm. Uh, I, I was very struck by Over Christmas, we also heard of this, there was a woman in uh, St Albans, and she got robbed, uh, burgled in her home, and the police didn't show up, and she had CCTV footage of the guy who'd burgled her, and uh, the police weren't interested. It turns out that in her town, in St Albans, which is about 128,000 people, there isn't a police station. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's... Uh, I was thinking today, uh, where is my local police station? Right. And so there, two questions then came from that. Why am I having to think, where is my local police station? And then, obviously, why don't I know where my local police station is? It's true. that I mean, that did begin probably before austerity, but mm. you think back to George Osborne, the cuts of fire stations, the armed forces... Yeah. And, and your local police station. Mm. And, and that's, it's got to be rebuilt, those capabilities. Yeah. It's true. We all, we all used to know where you could go and report a crime if it happened. Now, look, I want to get to one other subject with you both, and that's uh, the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, is claiming a win on migration figures. Uh, he's saying that he has... The groaning backlog of 92,000 legacy asylum cases has finally been cleared. I did, however, check, and it turns out there's still 99,000... Yes. cases in backlog. Um, are we just being kind of fibbed to on this, Paula, Do by you know any what? chance? I'm, I'm really concerned, A, about Rishi Sunak's memory, because we saw how bad it was during his um, interview in the COVID inquiry when he was cross-examined. Um, and now he seems his grasp of reality seems to be wearing very thin. Look, first of all, he told us that he was going to reduce the backlog. Then he told us, oh, no, 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 what I meant to say was we're going to reduce the legacy backlog. So that was from June 2022. Then we were told by um, t Tim Tom Persbrook, forgive me if I've uh, got his first name wrong, um, when he was front of the select committee in the beginning of December, that actually we're going to do our best to reduce the legacy backlog to a number that we can, we can attain. So there is just a con this consistent, unreliable information mm. that we're getting from Rishi Sunak. And is Dominic Cummings going to help him with that? <laughs> 
Well, I want to say, I want to read to you, James, this quote from the Prime Minister. Uh, in a New Year statement, Mr. Sunak said, quote, I am determined to end the burden of illegal migration on the British people. Have, have we heard that somewhere before? Well, I mean, I, I keep thinking, have they employed Alistair Campbell to spin for them prior to the election? <laughs> because it's just, it's so disingenuous. They know they were elected to reduce immigration, legal and yeah. illegal, yeah. and they've pumped up legal immigration and they've done nothing about illegal immigration. And so, I mean, the next election definitely fought on this and they're going to lose a lot of ground to the Reform Party yes, as yeah. a result of it. And you'll, you'll probably see... In fact, if, the, if, the, if Labour had... Labour would not have got away with the immigration figures that the Conservatives have done. No, absolutely. The Immigration was far lower under Labour. So I think they've got, they've got real answers. They've, they've, and they've got a real problem going into the next election, haven't they? Yeah. Because uh, they, they came into office saying we're going to get migration down. Remember, we heard David Cameron say he was going to get it down to the tens of thousands, not the hundreds of thousands, which was what it was in the 1990s. It's not that long ago. And they've got nowhere near. They've got nowhere near. And not only have they got nowhere near, but they are feeding us again this... this, this, this foolishness, quite frankly, when actually what they know is, is that our economy needs immigration. We need people here to work. We've got a low birth rate, and that is not going to change well, for a generation. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. There's, one, there's, well, there's, there's also... Hang on, look. One in five people in cities, including Liverpool, Manchester, uh, um, Leicester, one in five people of working age who are capable of working are not working and are being paid by the taxpayer to not work. Surely they can be made to work plus, before you have to bring other people in from around the world to work. Plus, so we have it? extremely low productivity. We've got advancements okay. in technology. It isn't a case of just import people to replace... I know we've got an ageing population, but what we're talking about last year is 1.2 million people coming in. Mm. Um, net migration... In uh, increasing by 700,000. And the list it. for worker visas continues to rise. It continues to expand because we need more people. You know, but this is a discussion that I suspect we are going to both, maybe all, come back to quite a bit in the years ahead. This is going to be a long year, by the way, for the Conservatives. Roll on May. Roll on May. <laughs> May, no, November. 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 Oh, Whenever it is, that's it from me. Whatever you're up to, make sure it's uncensored. Good night.